0: I'm grateful to be able to present a study of God's Word with you today. If I were to ask the question, what do you think the world needs? I'm sure there are many responses to that question. One might say we need better behavior. We need less corruption or maybe we need less selfishness. We need less divisiveness. In the times that we're in right now, I'm sure that one might say we actually need a vaccination. But the reality is is none of these solutions reach the core of our problem which is the woeful condition of the heart of man. Seldom does the world talk about the woeful condition of the heart of man because the world wants to concern itself with the things of the world. In the book of Romans, Paul asks a lot of questions. The Last I counted, it's north of 50 questions. And not all of these questions stand individually on their own. A lot of times he asks them consecutively. He's trying to lead a... a, lead the reader to a certain truth when he's asking these line of questions. And in our example today in Romans chapter 3, when he asked the question, what advantage has the Jew? He's arguing against what the Jews believe the superiority of the law, a law that was actually no longer valid, and they were arguing that it was over the pure sacrifice and thought that there was still salvation in it. Before we get into Romans chapter 3, there's a a couple of places of context that I think that we should look at. The first being Acts chapter 21. The events in Acts chapter 21 happened after Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Paul is traveling to Rome by the way of Jerusalem, and he stops in Jerusalem and he informs the elder of the great success of the gospel, that a lot of people have been obedient to the gospel. And Paul, they tell Paul of some problems that they've been having, uh, primarily that there were those that were still hanging and clinging on to the Old Testament law. And they make a request of Paul that he go to the temple and he go with four men who were under a Nazarite vow. And go with them to pay their vows and let Jewish believers see them. While at the temple, there are some Jews from Asia Asia Minor, and they believed Paul to be a traitor. So they brought false charges against him. In Acts Acts chapter 21 and verse 27, and when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks into this temple and hath polluted this holy place. In the temple, there was a barrier that they called the dividing wall, and it was improper for a Jew or excuse me, for a Gentile to be on the wrong side of that dividing wall. And if they went on the improper side of that wall, they were under the penalty of death. Likewise, a Jew who would take a Gentile with him on the improper side of that wall, they were also under the penalty of death. They saw Paul take a man by the name of Trophimus in verse 29 who was from Greece into that area. And they said, since he takes the temple and the law and all of us so lightly, we're going to bring up some charges against him. And as a result... Paul winds up spending five years in a Roman prison. So, Paul actually would get to Rome, although it would be in chains. Now, Romans 3 is the climax of Paul's argument that both Jew and Gentiles alike are guilty before God. And as Paul transitions his thought out of Romans chapter 2 into Romans 20, chapter 3, he's been discussing the religious pride of the Jews. He's been discussing that they've been dulled to true righteousness. Though the Jew talks about the superiority of the law, they don't understand the law. Though the Jew talks about circumcision, he doesn't understand circumcision. The reality that the Gentile who obeys the law of conscience is better off than the Jew who misplaced uh, different rituals over God's law. How that they had taken the law and made it something that it wasn't supposed to be and that ultimately... They refused the nature of what Jew- being Jewish was, that it was something that was inwardly and having righteousness with God and not simple, simply outward acts of righteousness created by men. And he deals with their self-righteousness. He deals with the fact that God judges all people. He deals with their religious hypocrisy. In chapter 3, he turns and asks the question we have today, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto him, unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid! Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, that thou mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh a vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. When I read a passage, the line of questioning that Paul does through Romans. I'm oftentimes reminded of whenever I was in high school and I was on the debate team. In debate, you were given a proposition and you had to write a affirmative argument and a negative argument. You would go to a debate tournament, and what they would do is they would put on the wall who you're debating, and then whether you were debating the affirmative or the negative. And you would find that out about an hour before your debate. Now, I was always fascinated by the fact that whatever one, whatever affirmative or negative that I tended to lean to, my other side would be stronger. So if I was given a proposition and I tended to lean towards the affirmative, my negative would oftentimes be stronger. And the reason that was is because I would have to work harder at proving my point and making my points. And I'm reminded of this process as Paul asked these questions because what you would have to do is essentially play the role of affirmative and negative, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's playing two different roles. Paul's playing the role of an objector and the person answering and him answering the questions. So it helps us understand these when we look at it from the roles and break these roles out. It would go something like this. What the objector is saying, the result of all that you've been saying is there's no difference between Jew and Gentile and that we are exactly in the same position. Is that what you really mean? Paul then says, by no means... The objector then says, well, then what is the difference? Paul says, for one thing, the Jews possessed what the Gentiles never directly possessed, which is the commandments of God. Well, the objector would say, then granted. But what if some of the Jews disobeyed commandments and weren't faithful to God and came under His condemnation? Haven't you just said that God gave the Jews a special position and a special promise? Now you go on to say that at least some of them are under condemnation, Does that not mean that God has broken His promise and shown Him to be unjust and unreliable? Paul says, far from it. What it does show is that there is no favoritism with God and that He punishes sin wherever He sees it. The very fact that He would punish and condemn the unfaithful Jew is the best possible proof of His absolute justice. The objector would say, well, very well then. All you've done is succeed in showing that my disobedience has given God an opportunity to demonstrate His righteousness. That my infidelity has given God the opportunity to demonstrate His fidelity. My sin is therefore an excellent thing. It has given God a chance to show just how good He is. I may have done evil, but good has come of it. To which Paul replies, an argument like that is beneath contempt. You only have to state it to see how intolerable it is. We see the audacity of the argument that's being presented to him whenever we look at it from the objector and Paul role. And we begin in verse 2 where he says he uses the word chiefly or what we would oftentimes say primarily. Primarily, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what advantage... Has the Jew, it's not in who you are, it's not in bloodlines, it's not in what you know. It's the fact that you've been privileged with the oracles of God. It's the fact that you've been privileged with God's purpose and with God's plan. And the Gentiles were not given this. Paul uses the term oracles of God to demonstrate the totality of God's Word, not just the law. He's talking about the Psalms and the prophets He's talking about all of these things that were a part of God's plan, that they were gifted and they were given and they had this privilege that the Gentiles didn't have. And he uses these words because later on in verses 9 through 20, he brings all of those, all three of those, the prophets, the law, and the, the Psalms to the stand to point out some very important points in their testimony against the Jews. Paul immediately turns to David. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Paul immediately turns to David in a time when David had sinned in his life. And he says, therefore, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art sin. God's dealing with David on the basis of his sin. He had sinned with Bathsheba in fornication, and Nathan the prophet had come to David, and pointed out and said, Thou art the man. We read in Psalms chapter 51, where David is repenting to God, and he says in verse fifty-one, in verse chapter fifty-one, and verse two, "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against Thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in Thy sight, that Thou mightest be justified when Thou speakest and be clear when Thou ju- judgest." David acknowledges that he's responsible for his sin, that God had the right to judge him individually for his sin in verse 3 he says for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me what Paul is illustrating is something that the Jews were completely overlooking they believed in judgment from the standpoint as a nation not the individual Paul is telling them that God had honored them with, through his covenant with, with uh, Israel but them as individuals will be judged for the sin in their own life. And Paul says, you need to look no further than your hero David to understand this. David looked at his sin and one of his transgressions before God, and he said, these are on me. Israel as a whole didn't pay for his transgressions. He paid for them. But the Jews, in knowing their place that they had in their relationship with God, took that as an opportunity to call out Sections of God's Word to do what they wanted to do, took it as an opportunity to create rituals and traditions and establish them before God's law, took the opportunity to create an oral law and establish it before and above God's law. What they were missing was the fact that God was looking at them individually in their heart, and their righteousness, not as them as a people, and they needed to understand that they had a relationship with God and that all of these things that God had done, giving His purpose and His plan to them, it was all to point them towards repentance. It was all to point them towards Jesus Christ. And we look at a passage like this and we look at the conversation that Paul with him and we say, man, that's kind of a ridiculous logic that they're getting to. But the reality is, is all these years later, we're no different. We look at God's Word and we... Take what we want to take from it. We don't allow it to lead us to proper repentance. We want to live the life that we want to live, and we twist God's word to justify those livings and how and the choices that we make. And at the end of the day, it does the same thing for us as it did for them. It leads to a license of sin. And that's the case that Paul points out in verse 5 of Romans chapter 3. He says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God, God unrighteous who taketh aven, take vengeance? The logic that he is arguing against goes as follows. If I lie, that makes God more truthful. If I'm faithless, that makes God more faithful. If, I'm a, if I sin in any, any area, that makes God look holier. Why would God bring, bring judgment on me? I'm doing Him a favor. We ought to sin more then because I'm making God look better. I'm making him look greater. Paul picks up on this same subject in in Romans chapter 6, where if you sin more, grace will abound more. The more you sin, the better you're making God look. And whenever we look at that and how the point that they're getting to, it's a very arrogant point. It's very arrogant to say, I'm doing all of these things and transgressing against what God wants. I'm denying His sacrifice. I'm denying the purity of the blood of Christ so I can make God look better. And this is what Paul is exactly anticipating some of them were saying. You see, whenever you're not allowed to be led to repentance, you have to do something. Now, there are some that completely reject Christ. They reject His sacrifice. There are some that want to accept it and have part in it, but they don't want to give up their old life. And in not doing so, you never have true repentance. You never have true righteousness or true understanding. And we create this license to sin because we think that, oh, we're going to make God look better through my misconduct and my transgressions. And the ideology that grace makes your life better mean that you can do whatever you want and it just makes God look better. Paul refutes that by bringing forth three witnesses to testify that all men are guilty before God. And he wants the Jews to understand that they are in the exact same position as the Gentile. The first witness he calls is the Psalms. He says in in Romans chapter 9, What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none, righteousness, none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Paul calls forth the Psalms, and he says, You're guilty. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. The word means none, zero, absolute. There couldn't even be one. Then to emphasize it multiple times, he says, no, not even one. There's not a single man, Jew or Gentile on this earth who has any kind of spiritual understanding apart from God or apart from Christ. Now, can you imagine that if you were the Jewish person listening to this or even reading this, what you would think? You thought that you knew God. You thought through all of these traditions and these rituals and all of these things that you could do that you knew God. You thought that what you were doing was holy. You thought that what you were doing was righteous. And Paul comes before you and says, it's all filthy rags. That none of you are righteous apart from God and establishing yourself on a law that's no longer valid and trying to get righteousness from that is apart from God. You're in no different boat than the Gentile. This is a true message of desperation of mankind. That apart from Jesus, there is no hope. You can place your hope in rituals, and tradition, in oral law. For us today, you can place your hope in your wealth, your job. But at the end of all of it, it's fruitless. Because it's apart from God and it's apart from Christ. Paul then turns to the prophets to testify. Isaiah takes the stand and shows, shows us the condemnation of men. In verse 13 he says, "...their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways." And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says, okay, Isaiah, show us the heart of man. Isaiah says they're swift to shed blood. There's nothing but destruction in their path. They don't know peace. They've not known peace. And the fear of God is not in them. Every man apart from Jesus Christ has the same depraved heart. He doesn't have a holy thought. He does not understand God. And he turns away from God into his own wickedness and is living away and apart from God. And in the instance of what Paul is talking to the Jews is you're doing this through the law. You're turning away from God. You're turning away from the pure sacrifice that was set before you that you might have salvation, and you're turning to a law that's no longer valid. You're no different than the Gentile. Paul then calls the law to the stand. In verse 19, he says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Despite the advantage of being God's chosen people and being given the oracles of God and the law, the Mosaical law, Israel wasn't righteous. The Jews were not righteous. The Mosaic Law was not equipped to make people righteous. It was equipped to make people aware of their unrighteousness and their offensiveness to God. No principle of the law could ever render a sinner righteous, but only emphasize their desperate need of the Savior. And that's what Paul is condemning them for. You had the oracles of law, you had the purpose and the plan of God, of God. And this was all supposed to point you to Christ. It was supposed to point you to our Savior. And Jew and Gentile alike have the same need for a Redeemer. For no one could be justified and made righteous through their own efforts or through this law, through good works or through human marriage. The law was given to produce a conscience of sin and not one's own righteousness. And this is the, the thing that the Jews didn't understand. When you read the Gospels of Christ, this is the thing that he points to almost consistently when dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the different Jews there, is they thought the law established them as righteous. And they were using that law to make people think that they were righteous. And they weren't using it for the intent that God wanted them to do to understand their sin and their depraved hearts and to constantly turn to God for repentance. Instead, they were taking the very thing that was supposed to point out their sin and saying, this is what makes me righteous. Of the many texts of the Bible that clearly state that you can't earn your salvation, this one's probably the most clear. The idea that the cross is not some sort of ladder in which we can pull ourselves up into heaven based upon our own morality, apart from God, apart from God's plan, apart from God's purpose. When Paul says no flesh is justified in his sight, he means just that. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God and to have perfect acceptance with Him. So one might ask the question then, and it's asked many times throughout the Scriptures, what purpose, is, what purpose was there in the law then? And I'm going to deviate quickly and step outside of Romans and go to Galatians to answer that because Paul answers that quite distinctly in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that, But after faith has come, we no longer are under a schoolmaster. As the sinner looks into the Scriptures and he looks in God's Word, he sees the defects of his character. He sees himself just as he should see himself, spotted, defiled, and condemned. But he needs to know that the law can in no way remove that guilt. And the Jews needed to understand that the law couldn't remove that guilt or it couldn't pardon them. That the law served as a very specific purpose, that it was the schoolmaster to bring or point them to Christ. And that once you understand who Christ is and you've been pointed in the right direction, you have the knowledge of Christ and the understanding of His blood and what it did on the cross from us, the law was no longer needed. The purpose was fulfilled. What Paul is telling them is that they needed to look at their hearts. They needed to look at the cross and understand that as Christ died beneath the weight of the sins of the world, it was to establish a better covenant. It was to get rid of an old covenant that didn't bring righteousness, that didn't bring salvation. The law condemns the sinner and thus drives him to Christ. Paul points this out in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. (coughs) For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul eloquently points out that the righteousness of God has manifested itself where it's been made known. And he says, These witnesses that I just established before you, the law, the prophets... The Psalms, I've laid these witnesses before you, and they all testify of this righteousness. And that that righteousness was upon all of them, both Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. Because of one important fact, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned and all need the the salvation of Jesus Christ... The law was no longer needed. And now the Jew and Gentile would both be under the same umbrella of Jesus Christ. Under the same blood of Jesus Christ. Paul segues from here and goes into Romans chapter 4, which is I'll look at next time. But as we bring this lesson and these thoughts to a close, I think there's two things that we can really understand And first and foremost, the bloodlines don't matter. In the case of the Jews, they had established themselves and their righteousness based upon a bloodline. They believed because they were Abraham's seed, they were the people of God's people in Israel, that they had righteousness. And because of this law that they'd been privileged to know and God's plan that they'd been privileged to have. Paul tells them, you're no different than the Gentiles. You and the Gentile alike equally need a Redeemer. And you both need the blood of Christ. The reality for us today is that there has been a couple thousand years of Christianity. And the bloodlines still don't matter. Each one of us individually need the salvation of Jesus Christ. You may have years and years and years of family members that are elders, deacons, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers who served dutifully in the church. But that bloodline doesn't matter. It's right that you had a privilege. You've had the privilege of having families that have guided you in God's Word. It's a privilege that you've had families that have taken God's word seriously and applied it in their homes and in their lives. But that doesn't give you righteousness, nor does that give you salvation. Because that leads to the second overwhelming point and that absolute need for Christ. We asked at the beginning of the lesson What do you think the world needs? What do you think the solutions to all those problems are? That's to deal with your heart. That's to understand that we all need Christ. Whether it's in times of good, whether it's in times of bad, whether it's in times of really bad, there is the absolute need for Jesus Christ. That we all have sin and we all have transgressions and we all need to come before the cross and understand what He did for us. Establishing Himself as that pure sacrifice so you and I could have salvation. Paul counters many arguments through the next few chapters. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, he says this, Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into His death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For that... Is dead, for he that is dead is free from sin. All of this conversation that Paul is trying to point the Jewish reader to, and you and I alike, is the need for to coming to Christ. And he asked the question Don't you know that as many of you were baptized, were baptized, baptized into his deaths, death? Therefore, as we are buried in Baptism, or buried in baptism and raised up from the dead like as He was coming from the waters of baptism. We also raised up in the resurrection in His likeness. It's very important that we understand that as Christ committed Himself to that cross, He wants a commitment from you and I. He wants us to understand that we need to repent of our sins, that we need to turn to Him. We need to turn to Him in the salvation that was offered through His sacrifice that we need to be obedient to that sacrifice and that good news that we can have life everlasting. If we would submit ourselves to baptism, if we submit ourselves to His plan and His will. Thank you for your time today, and God bless.